Maradona couldn't explain in minutia how to play the way he, that he wanted. That's the success of a manager when actually has got an idea what he wants to do, but knows the way to get there. And he's patient enough to see it grow and fail and adapt and all those things that Maradona was never willing to do. A lot of the managerial career of Maradona, he struggled with his own demons. So he didn't have the patience or the consistency of the delivery and the work, really. With Pep Guardiola, is, as we said earlier, is one of those personalities in which it's about this getting to a place, but never being fully satisfied and continue trying something else. And even though changing is hugely difficult, change is what he's done wherever he's been. Welcome everyone, new listeners and old, to A Load of BS, the podcast for curious, nosy people like you who want to understand what's going on between our ears and why we behave as we do. Now today I'm talking football and psychology with Guillaume Balaguer, someone whose work I admire and whose commentary on the game of football is eloquent, thoughtful and profound. Like me, Guillaume is endlessly curious about what makes people tick, the psychology of sport, how players and coaches become successful and also why they go wrong. Guillaume has written superb biographies of some of the most iconic players in history, Pep Guardiola, Cristiano Ronaldo, Diego Maradona, Lionel Messi and pause, Maurizio Pochettino. Today we focus on Pep Guardiola and Diego Maradona, two icons of sport whose characters and trajectories couldn't be more different. And all the more fascinating for that as I try to understand with Guillaume what made them the men they are, or indeed were, their successes, failures and idiosyncrasies. Before we dive in, let me remind you to subscribe or follow me wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please take a second to leave a review if you haven't done so already. And if you'd like to access all my articles too, go to aloadofbs.substack.com. I hope you enjoy it and on with the show. Guillaume, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my pleasure to spend time with you Hello, today. Daniel. How are you? How did you get to the name of the podcast, by the way? Was it a uh, sour fight to find it? Well, it, it, it popped funny. into my head. It's a childish pun, which I have to admit gives me endless pleasure and I think still has plenty of mileage in it yet. So I hope it differentiates me from the behavioral science podcast crowd. I think you straight away does, yes, yes. Yeah, well, that's the aim. Stand out. Now, I'm particularly pleased that you're here with me today because you're a writer and broadcaster on football whose work I really admire and whose commentary I think on the game is all of eloquent, thoughtful and profound, by which I mean that your interest and understanding of sport goes far beyond the tactics and the result. And I think like me, you're endlessly curious about what makes people tick, the psychology of sport, how players and coaches become successful and also why they go wrong, of course. And just like with the great Shakespearean heroes such as Othello, Hamlet, Romeo or King Lear, with greatness comes fragility and indeed often tragedy. And so in differing ways is the case with two subjects who we're going to focus on today as a means to understand what goes on in the minds of real icons of sport. And firstly, that's Pep Guardiola. For those who don't know, a very fine player, principally for Barcelona in the 1990s and now recognized as the greatest manager of his generation at Manchester City. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And then, of course, Diego Maradona, who probably needs little introduction, but was considered one of the greatest footballers of all time from his playing career in the 1980s. And dare I say, possibly one of the worst managers. 
but maybe we'll come on to that. And now Guillaume has written biographies on both of these men, Maradona, the boy, the rebel, the god, and Pep Guardiola, another way of winning. And both books dive deep into psychology, questions of ambition and motivation, of greed, hunger, power, and indeed weakness and failure. So as a continuation of my mini-series on the psychology of sport, Having already interviewed Gary Lineker and Henry Winter, I wanted to talk some BS with Guillaume. So let's start with your personal motivations, actually. Now, just tell me, what do you love about football? What does it continue to teach you? I think the first thing to say is that I'm not in football because of football. I'm in football because football brought me into it, in a way. I was a journalist, and I'm from that generation of journalists that prepare themselves to be that first, and whatever comes along, second, depending on the industry, on the market, on whatever you are. So I finished university in Barcelona after having three-month internship locally. I decided to go to England for three months to learn English. Those are kind of magic words, because I know so many people along the way that said three months, and ended up staying like myself, three decades and in that period, in the first years, I did whatever was required to survive, from working in a pub to writing about cinema, especially doing a lot of articles on Lady D and, as we call her, Diana and, uh, and Camilla and Prince Charles. And so, yeah, I worked for a tabloid magazine in Spain. And that allowed me to pay for food, basically. And it was in 1997, 96, 97, that... I came across a magazine, a football magazine called Don Ballon. The boss of Don Ballon at the time was basically somebody that had studied with me at university. And I said, you don't have a correspondent in England. Do you want me to do it? And he was like, yeah, go ahead. So that was the beginning of my relationship with football. I didn't go out looking for it. In fact, I was quite hurt by my team, Espanol, not doing very well. And in fact, you know, losing in the UEFA Cup final in 88, that kind of bared my love for football because it wasn't completely unexpected having won the first leg. It was a two-leg affair at the time, having won 3 nil. <laughs> it's a long story, but just to say that at that point, I started writing about football. Now, a year later, I uh, rang Sky Sports and I said, you've started to do Spanish football. So I'm a Spanish journalist and I like to write about what you do. They invited me into the studio. They said, right, you sit here in front of a camera and the show's about to start and you're the guest. And they said, like, what? Uh, have you done this before? It's like, a thousand times. That, of course, was my debut on television. And then at half time of that game, I was told, you know, do you want to be doing a highlight show? Do you want to do it? And it was like, yes. Once you're in television, a lot of things happen. So it wasn't so much that I wanted to be a sports journalist, which is how many start these days. It was just, I was a journalist and this came along. And as I say, once you are on television, there's even the opportunity of writing books. And if you're going to do books, do it the way that you like. And as you described earlier, basically I was more interested about the people behind or the personality behind the decisions than the latest score. And that remains the same. I'm the chairman of a football club. It's not about football that I'm there. It's just because... Uh, I've got an idea of what we can do. It's about trying to convince everybody along and build something together. So from starting a career writing about the British royal family, you graduated to writing about the real royals of our society, which is, of course, footballers. And, you know, you've, of course, as you say, you started writing books. You've written about a number of football people now. Pep, Maradona, of course, Pochettino, Ronaldo, Messi. So you're certainly not choosing uh, Carlos Kickerballs here. But what are the character types that you're attracted to? Do, do the above five share something in common that fascinates you? Yet again, the story of how we choose them is a story that doesn't have to do with me trying to explain the biggest names in the world. It was just a publishing company that's not 
a football publishing company, but a general one, decided to get to know more about these people. And they thought the approach I gave them was the right one for the general public. And yes, as you are starting to do, first it was the season on the brink on Rafa Benitez and his first season at, at Liverpool when they won the Champions League. And then Pep Guardiola, you do Pep, you have to do Messi, you do Messi, you have to do Cristiano. After Cristiano's like, what do we do? Well, Pochettino's doing well. And finally, by the way, we haven't done Maradona yet. And now, you know, I kind of become a biographer of big names, so it has to be done. But there are certainly things that are in common. We all have the facility to get to a very good 7 out of 10 if we dedicate ourselves to it. But those that actually get to the next level, to be the best in the business or to actually challenge themselves well beyond what any of us will do is what takes them to the top. And I admire them because once there, to maintain yourself there, it's the hardest thing because you have to be humble enough to keep learning at a time where... You know, the easiest thing would be to say, well, I know everything. I mean, I'm the number one, aren't I? So there's no need for more. But they're all born with a gene. I don't know how to call it. And you wouldn't be able to describe it any other way in which they just want more and more and more. And once they get to a certain place, it's like, right, what, what is that next? And that not only takes them to a place that they don't know themselves, but that nobody else just knows. Just what Ronaldo has done with his goals and what Messi has done with his continuous success at the highest level, etc. And Pep Guardiola exploring new avenues. That only have to do with a mixture of education they had for sure, the fact that they, they had that hunger and something natural that makes them be right at the top. And as far as Pep and Maradona are concerned, I could say it about some of the others as well, but what were you trying to show by writing about two icons of football both of whose lives, of course, who've been already well-documented, although admittedly less perhaps for an English-speaking audience. But what were you trying to show which was sort of different from the existing canon of literature on those characters? Well, in the case of Pep Guardiola, there wasn't anything written in English at all. And there were one or two books in Spanish, but it was very football-based, if you like. So this was an opportunity for him and for me to actually tell his story at a time where he wasn't an icon. Nobody called him an icon. That was at the end of his stay at, at Barcelona. So four years in which he got it very, very right and very, very wrong. Perhaps he should have left a year earlier. But certainly he was doing new things. He was taking football to a different place. At a time when we were told, that's it. We've reached the end of the game. You know, you have to have very... It's all physical midfielders. It's all about, you know, physical football, fast football. And he was convinced that there was another way. I found that fascinating. That not only he thought there was another possibility, it's just that even when he didn't look right, he insisted on it and convinced everyone that that was the case. There's that perfect example, but there's so many I could tell you of in pre-season. You're talking about, he comes in and tells a bunch of internationals that won a lot of things. The Spanish guys have won the European Championships, for instance, but others have won in their own countries or with Barcelona previously. And he was saying, you know, forget what you know, I want you to give me a lot of work and I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to take you in a new place. From the goalkeeper who was showing videos of, you know, in certain parts of the world, in Mexico, how the centre-backs just placed themselves on each side of the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper rolled the ball to either of them and that was the beginning of the move. And Victor Valdez was like, are you crazy? The centre-backs won't do that. And people say, well, if they don't do that, they won't play for me. I want the guys that do it. So he started a whole new concept. But as I say, he needed to convince them all and there was that moment in pre-season with Xavi Hernandez, who's thinking this offer from AC Milan and Manchester United always said that they wanted me. I think maybe I should go a new challenge, two years of not winning anything with Barcelona. This new coach is talking to us about these things. Pep Guardiola sat down next to him, stretched, as he had just done the training session with him, and uh, said to him, look, unless you stay with me, this is not going to work. You are the most important figure in the whole thing. So you're with me or the whole thing will, will collapse. 
Xavi was 20 centimeters taller and certainly felt important. And with that, there was another stone, another brick on what Pep Guardiola was building. And as you can see, none of this had to do with tactics. It had to do with the mind. Absolutely. Well, we'll come back to that a little more later. But I just wanted to ask a question before we get into the characters of Pep and indeed Maradona. I want to ask you actually about your writing approach, because it definitely gets under the skin or seeks to get under the skin of the protagonists to understand their motivations, ambitions, their brilliance, but also their vulnerabilities. How do you actually do that? What's your process? I think I've tried to learn a lot about um, psychology without going to courses or writing specific psychological books. But certainly, I like the psychological literature, if you like, that tries to get behind the decisions of the character. I had a natural interest for people. I've got an empathy, I think, for what people cares about and what makes them behave one way or another. And you have to develop that, especially when you are an immigrant, when you are in a new part of the world where you got to live with new people. Identify very quickly who's with you or who's against you or how to just make sure that you enter into the world when you are so different and you speak another language. And at some point I wasn't speaking very good English, of course. So I had that in my hand. And then with that being the driving interest of my writing, then you have to convince the people that you're talking about to actually allow you to spend time with them and talk about them and how they think and why they do the things they do. In the case of Pep Guardiola, and each case has been different, but in the case of Pep Guardiola, I had lots of hours of conversation with him. I think he enjoyed the fact that a lot of it had to do with that, with processes and way of thinking. The early chapters have to do, especially the beginning, with the way he thinks. So you enter that moment where you have to say, look, I'm not in your head. Have a look at what I've written and let me know if I'm getting it right, if, if I understand you. And in the case of Pep Guardiola, I said, no. Nope. No, I'm not doing that. Basically, he opened the doors at a time where this last season of Barcelona, where there was that huge battle with Mourinho, where everybody was, you know, for Barcelona or Madrid, pro Barcelona, pro Madrid. Everything was black or white. And I was allowed in and I had to thread everything very carefully. But at this particular point, I said, I'm not in your head. I think this is what you think. And he said, all I'm going to do for as often as you want, we will chat. When you want to talk to somebody, let me know. But you publish your book. And then when it's out, I'll just go to the shop and buy it. And that's it, which gives you such a huge responsibility, the freedom to write it, of course, but you have to make sure that you get it absolutely right. So what it was a psychological profile at the beginning, I went even deeper <laughs> and asked as many people as I could about my doubts until they stopped being doubts. And then I thought, I'm happy to publish this and I'm happy that he will be happy when he eventually reads it. My understanding is that he's happy, so more or less we, we got it right. So that's a success. So let's talk a little more about Pep then, since we're there. He's a complex individual, and it appears that there's also quite a lot of myth masking the real man. So if that's the case, who is he really, and what drives him? Oof, you need a whole book to tell that story, but yeah, it's complex. I think it all starts, I was thinking about this just before chatting to you, I think it all starts with a complex, with a difficulty that he's got to accept about himself, which drives him a little bit that he's not good enough. And I've known so many people that have got that feeling. The last one to tell me about it, Pete Radovich, 44 times Emmy winner, who is my executive producer of, of the CBS work that I do. A genius, basically. And he, he's got it. I've got it as well. There's so many that do. And he certainly has. So that comes from the fact that he never went to university. Those that have gone to university, like myself, I think many of us have got this dream of nightmare, really of realizing 20, 30, 40 years after you've been to university and finished the course that you didn't finish it, that there was an exam you didn't do. And oh my God, if anybody finds out that I haven't finished my course, which means that everything that's happened since, it just doesn't count. So that's the fear of 
or being found out. Imposter syndrome, right? And I think he, he's got kind of the, the opposite, which is he hasn't gone to university, so he doesn't know anything because he hasn't been to university, because he hasn't written books, because he hasn't written poems like some of the poets that he knows or hasn't done movies like some of his best friends. It's just not good enough. Yeah, okay, he's good at football, but what's that? And that means that I think two things. One drives you because you have to keep going until you convince everybody. And of course, the more he goes and the more years he's at the game, the more enemies he has, which means that the more people that will not accept that he is unique and he's a genius and he's taking us to a new place. So it's a never-ending run. He has to keep going and going and going. But at the same time, because he hasn't got the frame that perhaps university gives you or because university, if it teaches you something, I think, it's just how to find out about knowledge and you know where to find it and how to transform it into your own experience. Well, he doesn't have any that frame, so he Pick stuff from everywhere. Pick stuff from volleyball, from chess, from poetry, from inspirational stories, from history of the game, of course, from intuition. And all that mixed together just becomes this complex, organized attack that he's introduced us to. Because very briefly, the football started with you pass the ball and one in front of you does something with it, passes the ball, etc. Then we went into organized defense. And he's taking football into organized attack, which is, of course, organize your brain and your intuition and your creativity is no doubt the most difficult thing. Well, that's what he's doing it, and he's been very successful at it. I mean, he seems to me to have a very innate understanding of human behavior, into a natural intuition. I'm not sure that he gets everyone, but it doesn't matter in his case, because this is a creative genius that has got an idea of what he needs on the pitch. So he wants people to react the way he wants them to react. To do that, you make them repeat exercises in training to a point where they know themselves but they are the role that they're supposed to have. Now, I find this interesting because when I wrote about it in the time of Barcelona, he had a relationship with the players that I think has evolved and has changed. So at the beginning, talking about that empathy with people and understanding people, at the beginning, he wanted to understand everyone. Then asked him permission if he could change the brain and then change the brain. And that was very difficult because at 27, 28, I don't know, Thierry Henry or Abidal or Xavi Hernandez, those guys already won a lot, as I said earlier. And to try to change them was very hard. And of course, if anybody at any point turned the face when he was coming into a place or ran away from him or avoided him or made a joke at his expense, it killed him. It absolutely killed him because he wanted the heart of the player and the mind of the player. Later on, I think it was such an expensive exercise to be empathic with everyone and having to understand everyone and having to be understood by everyone. He's obviously gone to places where he's been able to mould the squad at Manchester City more than anywhere else. War is less about the reaction of players. This is what he needs. It's a winger that comes inside, that understands the role in between the lines, that can get into the box. To do that, you do training. Of course, you have to know the person. And of course, you know, if there is a problem, he'll be there for you. But it's more important at this point, I feel, to identify the talent. And that is also the personality, the right one. Somebody that moldable, somebody that can change to whatever he has, made him his own, and then, you know, put him on the pitch to fit with everything else, which, as I say, is a different approach in terms of psychological, the relationship with the players than uh, it was at the beginning. I mean, beyond the obvious playing talents that he's always really had at his disposal, he seems to have an ability to engender really strong social identity in his teams. This sort of prioritization, I think you touched on a prioritization of the collective ahead of the individual, despite working with all these big egos. And there's a lot of research, by the way, which shows the team benefits of that in terms of their well-being, how quickly they learn, how quickly they can take on innovative approaches, their resilience and their general satisfaction. But how does Pep create this time after time, this sense of tight belonging? I find that very interesting because if you go to Brazil, 
And a Pep Guardiola, who has got this energy and knowledge, wants to put it in practice to win in football. And not only to succeed, but to give a spectacle, which is the essence of what Pep Guardiola does. It's from Johan Cruyff, from the Dutch masters, from the Dutch school. He learned that basically this is a game and there's a lot of people that want to come and see you play. So give them something back. Give them a lot back. If you ask a Brazilian to do that, it will be down to how... The individual performance, I think, I'm guessing. So it will be much more down to the dribble, the technical skill, the moment of brilliance, which is, by the way, you go to the street and that's what you see. That's what it gets clapped. That's where street games get stopped when somebody does a nutmeg or does something crazy with the ball. That is very difficult to take that essence of the game into a collective. They've done it because they've got so much talent, but it wasn't so much based on a structure, a collective structure. It was a lot. It was in based on individual talent. And Pep Guardiola has got that, but his education, which is Catalan, Catalan is very, again, the collective has got a priority, is a nation that has suffered, and to come out of suffering, it's better to do it together, um, where he, of course, has gone to Barcelona, which is a club as well that defends at an idea ahead of the individual, and then mixed with what he learned from Johan Cruyff, which again, he was down to get to a spectacle, but by how the team performs. Well, that basically is, is his path, has been his path. What I find also very interesting is that I think basing football in the individual has got a very short run, a very short road. Doing collectives, doing spectacle and trying to win with the collective as you know, has got a longer run and he enters us in completely new places. You know, he's used to play whatever system before, but it was a very simple football. And now it's becoming so complex. That's allowed because in teams like Pep Guardiola, in which the collective have given priority. So he's just basically putting more layers to every role. So then at the time of mixing them all together, it gives you more possibilities. I think he's very aware of all of that. That's like a chess game more than ever. And that's how she's taken us because he's educated that way, because he believes that's the way, because I think he's now beyond the result in that he's won a lot already. As you said, I don't know how you describe him, but many would have done said, you know, the most, not only the most successful manager of our generation, but the most innovative, the most creative. There is all that. So I think he's got the label now. He's got the trophy, you know, that nobody gives you, but he has. So now he's in that absolutely wonderful place of being in a club that everybody understands when they win and when they lose, why that is. So Pep only has to keep doing his thing and, you know, asking the full back to become a centre midfielder or as he's thinking, a goalkeeper to place himself where the centre backs are. And if somebody is able to put a ball ahead of the goalkeeper, it'll be his fault. But on the other hand, by risking that, and risk is something that he's also very fond of, he'll give you an extra man in midfield or when you build, when you start building. So a lot of things that he wants to try and he will do it because, as I said, now he's beyond the result and he understands the process that took him there and, and he's continuing exploring, which is great. As we talk about collective spirit, a minor digression, because this in particularly interests me. Now, if we go back to when Leicester City won the Premier League five, six years ago, I think they had this spirit too, very much so. And it's what took them to some degree over the line, but they were unable to replicate it the following season. Do you think Leicester didn't quite realise what their magic ingredient was? And so they failed to bottle it, if you like. It'd be so unfair to call anybody that wins the Premier League a bottler. I wasn't calling them a bottler, sorry. They failed to bottle the magic, as it were, I meant Oh, to say. see, sorry, sorry. They no, because I, I heard that. 
I heard that. It's like, if you're going to call up somebody a butler. And no, 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 not at all. Careful. No, no, not you, but whoever uses that term, you have to understand what's in their head before you actually do that. And it's such a perspective way of describing any effort in sport, especially from the sofa, you know. No, no, I would but, say they failed to you, capture the magic of what they had. They didn't, maybe they didn't yeah, quite yeah. Ha- grasp it. Yes. You can cut this anyway. Because <laughs> yeah. I was digressing as well on those that use the word butler and generally do not respect those that are in the elite. I mean, that, yes. that I, I no, know. for sure. But yeah, no, it was a miracle. It was an accident. It was a bunch of circumstances that brought Leicester, or it could have been Spurs to win the title. I mean, that really doesn't happen. That just simply doesn't happen and will not happen again. So punching above the wave is just a way of describing what was happening there. Certainly, what was interesting is that, yes, they could have got so much out of winning that they didn't because they weren't prepared for it. They weren't prepared to even celebrate on the day they won the league. I know some players there that they kind of organised on the day when, because of course they were at home as they were watching. Was it the uh, the Chelsea Spurs game? I can't, I can't remember That's what right. it was. That That's right. Well, at that point, it's like, what do we do? Oh, Barley says, come to my home if you want and we'll just have a party. And others went to another pub and, and they trained the next day. And I knew somebody who was there the next day and it's like, they never won before and they don't know how to win. They're training. <laughs> They're just normally training a little bit of, you know, jolts from hooks. There was no bush ready to just take them around the town as the big heroes. And because they didn't know how to win, they didn't know how to get the best out of them there. Certainly, it's been pleasing to see that they, they haven't collapsed completely and they're still competing at a very big level, that has to do anyway with the budget that they've got now. Money is, is so important in the Premier League. It leaves you where, you know, your wages leave you more or less where you should be in the table. But to actually win and continue to win, you have to prepare to win, but especially you have to know how to win. And I think Leicester were a little bit taken aback by the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Let's go back to what we were talking about, Pep and his style and his sort of psychological handling of his players. More broadly, do you think that a spirit of sacrifice then is the backbone to every successful team to which there's no compromise? It's buy-in or ship out. Is that very much Pep's philosophy? It has to be. It has to be because if anybody doubts that creeps in into the man of one, two, three players, then it's a disaster. You obviously have to play a lot with what we've got. So Pep arrives to Manchester City, for instance, and he knows that Kunaguero is not going to give him 100% of what he needs. In fact, he was asked, obviously, the important role here, the important job is not just when you have the ball, but when you don't have the ball. So he was asked to go, like, if we lose the possession, you have to go to the centre-back, run to the other centre-back and run to the full-back, whatever, depending where the ball goes. And they trained that a lot. And what they saw in him is that at the beginning, he went to the first centre-back and then he forgot what else he had to do. And then they kept reminding him. He ended up going to the second centre-back eventually, but really against his wishes, and they are going to the left-back as well. He had to sacrifice in a way what he thought his football was about, but it's much easier and it would have been a possibility during that Kunawero years at Manchester City to get another striker that gave them that. It didn't happen for a bunch of reasons, so they had to work with what they had. But yes, call it sacrifice, because everybody that's at the top has sacrificed a lot of stuff. For sure, because we can, one can also say there's a sense of sacrifice in Pep's playing style, for which there's rarely a plan B. And I wonder whether he's tends towards dogma and almost sort of religious adherence to a style of play. And I wonder whether that, do you either call that a weakness and a stubbornness at times taken too far, or actually do you see it as a reflection of his brilliance as a manager? I see many teams that play 4-4-2 that have got a way of playing 4-4-2, a second way of playing 4-4-2, and a desperate way of playing 4-4-2. I see Guardiola having 50 ways of playing his system. So you call it dogmatic, if you want. You can call it obsessive. 
I don't know, there'll be other adjectives, but he believes that when you walk into the pitch, you have to be protagonist. And to do so, you have to have the possession more often than not. And he believes that to beat teams, you have to base your attacking organization. Now, that's a dogma, but how he does it, it's in a hundred different ways. Especially British analysis, it didn't happen in Germany and it didn't happen in Spain. When people say, oh yeah, but why doesn't he lump it forward to a forward? It's a, you know, instead of just passing it to the back, it's much quicker. It comes back much quicker as well. It doesn't guarantee you absolutely anything. And certainly he has had to adapt because you can create conditions for something to happen. And refereeing in England, for instance, may not punish the defender for a foul and then the whole thing collapses. So he's worked towards, I don't know, the ball to be going to the winger and then he gets a kick and referee doesn't give it and then all the work just goes amiss. So he now has to understand that he has to take in consideration the English culture, the English refereeing, the demand of the fans. Fans want things to be chaotic and to be out of control and he wants total control. So mixing that is not easy and pleasing everyone is not easy and many people say it's boring but it's in fact it's, it's very controlling that's what it is and unique and many other things perhaps fans don't go to football to see maybe but in any case in terms of solutions he's got more solutions than any other team that you can point me out to perhaps with the exception of Bayern Munich he's got so many solutions so he doesn't need a plan B he's got plan A one plan A two plan A and you go on and on and on and on and on by the way for those that see success as titles, titles are there to prove that that's the right approach. I couldn't agree more. You've clarified that perfectly. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. Now, before we continue, I must mention my sponsor, Crankwheel. How many times have you asked people if they can see your screen or hear your voice on Zoom calls? or had to spend 10 minutes while the other person figures out how to connect. Well, with Crankwheel, you can instantly share your screen and monitor engagement, project HD videos, or even grant control to the other person. Crankwheel is used by sales teams in solar, insurance, digital marketing, and finance, amongst other industries, and it's just great for onboarding new customers, particularly to reduce churn rates. You simply share a link during a phone call, and the other person enters on any browser, any device without registration or installation. Now, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now on with the show. Shall we turn our attention to Maradona briefly? There's plenty more one could say about Peps. I'm, I'm conscious of that, but let's talk about Diego for a few minutes if that suits you. How do his origins explain the man? Like with all of us, we are the consequence of, uh, of our circumstances. And quite clearly, he was somebody that had a special talent that had to do with coordination, with control of the ball, with a mind that could see the bigger picture as well very early on. A lot of things that in one of the early training sessions with the Cebollitas, the little team that he was playing with, somebody was, you know, from his home, imagine coming out, driving a, a bike, stopping to see a football in a football field, some kids playing. And this person at the end of the training session and seeing Maradona play is like, have my bike. I give you my bike. That kind of inspirational reaction to seeing Maradona has happened a lot of the times in his life, which makes him feel special. 
obviously, from the moment that he's eight or nine. So you've got the reaction of people, you've got the talent that he's born with and that he develops because he plays with the ball constantly. You've got all that and you've got a family that feel that logically that they want to improve their circumstances and want to live a better life. And at 15, he becomes the head of the family because he earns his first money and then he just buys a house or no rents a house at the beginning and places everybody there, all his brothers and sisters and mom and dad, which means that his life has gone the other way around. And being the head of the family means that you cannot get a bad pass, you cannot get an injury, you have to score all the time. A pressure that at 21 or 20, when he's a Boca, makes him think for the first time, I want to retire. I don't want any of this. I just want to play football. And spends the rest of his life dreaming of going back to that park to play with his friends at Teboyita. All that define a personality and all that define, well, everything. At the same time, he enjoyed the attention of the old man that uh, gave him the bike and how he impressed him. He wanted to impress everyone. The stage became bigger and he was always wanted to be on, on top of the stage. And being there to please everyone is impossible. So then you have to, you know, do a, a long battle that requires a lot of energy to give happiness to everyone and to make sure that everyone is on your side. That also drove him big time, the stage, given the king of the show. And to the end, because at the end, you know, he wanted to be Maradona all the time. He didn't want to be Diego. He didn't want to be the person, the, the individual that was always inside him. He wanted to be the character. And as uh, Daniel Arcucci's biography, uh, biographer told me, he always wanted to score the goal against England. Both, really. <laughs> so to keep getting a thousand years of grace, because he thought that as he stole from thieves with the hand of God, he gets a thousand years of grace. He wanted that, but he wanted also the other one, the showman goal. But that's still considered and will be considered forever. I think the goal of the, all the tournaments in the history of the game. I mean, you're right. I think he definitely, in some ways, reveled in his role as representative or symbol of the poor and underrepresented. But you mentioned his move to Boca Juniors from, I think, Argentinos Juniors, if I'm probably mispronouncing that, but excuse me. But I, I felt that when I was reading your book, that that was an important turning point from him shifting from a shy modest youth before joining Boca and that was a sort of the beginning of him becoming this far more complex demanding self-destructive person would you agree with that yeah, it was a good moment to see the separation of the two Diego Maradonas, if you like. I think when you are from a poor family and when you haven't had things that you consider very important, material things most of the time, but not just that, you tend to look at the world from behind a glass, you know, with the hands on the glass, with the nose just pushed towards the glass and wanted to be on the other side. And at 20, you just was also on the other side, but he could just turn around and he could see the little kid still pushing his nose in the glass. And that was him. That was him for good and always wanted to be the little kid, but at the same time, never really leaving the possibility of having the best jewellery, the best watches, the big coats, to be in the big parties and to have as many women as he could get. But at the same time, being allowed to have a normal life every now and again, and everybody should be happy with it. What do we know for his brothers and sisters? We know nothing, hardly anything, because they were just Maladona's brothers and sisters. I think in a way, he never helped them get out of there but at the same time it's difficult to get out of there because he was absorbing everything around him he wanted his wife to have the role that he needed her to have he wanted his mom to be the ideal mom and that to be the ideal dad and for as long as that world the other world the, not, the more normal world was there holding him together he could just go into the showman world and enjoy himself and then go back into the normal one for a while that worked but eventually when parents died when his wife was badly treated very very badly treated and abused in many ways psychologically mostly 
also went away from him, then he had no foundations. He had nothing to hold on to. He was the one who had put the rules all the time and, and he was looking around and nobody was following them. And that obviously created a crisis that I don't think he ever recovered from. There was something seemed rather Peter Pan-like to me. He was never allowed to transform from child to adult. He was kind of owned by both mm. the, the state and all his hangers-on. I mean, by the way, you talk in the book about how power came to him rather magnetically, often governmental power. He was somehow always had these strong associations with Fidel Castro or others. I wonder what it was. Maybe it was just the star quality. People want to be associated with success, but there was something particular about those relationships with Diego, I thought. Yeah, it's, it's charisma, isn't it? There's a charisma that's special. I mean, how many people you must have crossed paths with that bring something out of just being there by just talking? They have an aura. I always felt that, that yes, there are people you admire, partly because they've got this magical thing that they got in them. David Beckham, for instance. So many others said Alex Ferguson. I'm talking just in football. But then I realized in the Pochettino book that you can study aura, you can feel it, and you can actually use it for your own benefit. So Pochettino has done that through a lot of years. And that intuition that is a mixture of experience, but also that natural chemistry that gets created between people can be studied. And there's so much of the brain, you know, this better than me, that, that hasn't been explored. That seems to be one. And Pochettino explored that one because he felt that he has that sixth sense for people. And when that happens, not only he's recognized it and has identified it, he uses it as well. So in the first five minutes of sitting with somebody, that chemistry is not there. That sixth sense doesn't give him the right impression. He's not going to sign for his club, no matter how good he is. Well, unless, you know, you're messy or whatever. Now it's different, PSG. I'm talking about at Spurs when he had a say or a bigger say on matters. So that aura is something that quite clearly, and I've been in in the presence of Maradona a few times, he had it. Held by the fact that he had an entourage of 20 of people that was telling him you're special all the time and everything they did and how they moved and how they talked to him. So, yeah, he walked floating. I saw it. He was half a meter from the floor. He didn't touch the floor. I saw it. It felt like that. Anyway. Amazing. Must have been amazing to be in his presence. But here's a question which I have a feeling you might want to kick me for, but I'm going to try it anyway on you. As far as Diego's concerned, for someone who was so precociously talented, are we rather blinded by the myth rather than the reality? What I mean by that is that, of course, he was hugely successful by most standards, but his peaks were relatively short-lived, certainly in comparison to other greats of the game, a couple of whom you've written about. So I sort of wonder with that, are we often more in love with the idea of him his symbolism rather than the man he actually was. We are in love with the fact that he was so big, that he had so many layers to his personality, that he challenged the biggest names, the Pope, or, you know, some of the uh, dictators, or became friends with them as well, because he was such a big figure, pure paradox, such charisma. That's why we love those characters. Life will be boring without them. We don't want to be them. Well, I'm telling you, I don't want anybody that I know to be him. But certainly he's got that thing that doesn't blind us. I mean, but basically it just tells us a story of a myth. And haven't we all done that for like, I don't know how many thousands of years of telling each other stories that allows us to explain the world somehow. There are people that are special, are born with a touch of God. He's one of them. So it becomes part of our life. And when they take it away, by the way, it's such a big drama. It was a big drama, his departure, his death. But there are one or two annoying flies like myself that uh, all of a sudden decide to put in writing that, yes, a year and a half was his peak. And a peak that has never been reached in the history of the game. Never, ever. Nobody's reached that peak. It's just that it lasted a year or two. These other wins had to do with his personality, his success, his talent, all that helped. But the peak was two years. That's why I will always say, having explored Messi and Maradona very closely, I will always say Messi, for me, best player in history because he's done it for 15 years. And even though 
at the moment, he's struggling a little bit with adapting to a new circumstance with COVID, who was very, very tough, with injuries. New City have not been away since he was 12. That eventually, with time, if body allows him, you'll see a better Messi. But in any case, we're still talking 17 years in the elite, doing something important in every final. That was more than Maradona did, even though Maradona won the World Cup and Messi just got to a final, which will be used by many to say, see, Messi knows not as good as Maradona. But in terms of are we blinded, I think every now and again, somebody scratches the surface and says, this is also Maradona, somebody who was the first at many things. He was the first physical coach, individual physical coach. He was the first at having an agent, the first one at having a press officer, the first one at challenging UEFA and FIFA and saying that they were corrupt. He was the first at many, many things. But at the same time, he abused his wife. I say it that way because it's how he was. Uh, didn't allow it to be what she wanted or could have been. And yeah, he talks about being the king of the poor, but he was very rich. <laughs> he had money, but distributed well, but mostly he kept it. I mean, there was a lot of things that he was a part of chat, and that's what's explored at, at the book, which kind of takes the blindness a little bit away, if possible. Of course, in terms of his greatest sustained success at a club level, that was with Napoli. I mean, what was it about Napoli that made for this great fit and love affair? A bunch of things. It wasn't just that he went to a club that had good players and won, because in fact, the season before he arrived, they almost went down. And then the first season, I think they finished eighth. The second season, I think they finished fifth. And then they eventually won the title. And it was just the fact that Napoli is very much like Buenos Aires in the street, the noise, the smell, the people are very, very similar. So he, he felt at home straight away. The fact that having been kicked out of Barcelona, basically, and again, very badly treated with a touch of xenophobia involved in it as well. He goes to a place where 70,000 people are waiting for him in the stadium and he becomes a king again and gets that kind of reaction that he wants from people, which is devotion, total devotion without questions. And he got that for a long while until he didn't. But for the time that he did, he used his, as he always done, he used his power to gain even more power, more influence, but also for the good of him and the team. So convince the club to buy certain players, to remove certain managers and bring others and a lot of things that helped the team win because he had a clear idea of how to win a much clearer idea than the people that took decisions of the club. Those things certainly helped. At a time when Serie A was the Premier League of now, the best players were there, the best managers were there, and everybody fought for that title. It helped him. It's very well known, but it has to be mentioned. He identified a cause as soon as he arrived. Oh, what? The North are against us. Well, give me the shield and give me the sword and I'll battle them. So a bunch of things that helped him. I think his decline physically and mentally had been used a lot of cocaine and mixed it with drinks, with alcohol in his first two, three years at Napoli from 87. I think the decline starts. Still manages to win another Scudetto, but you could see that he had to pick his moments and he had difficulties to control the drug addiction and a lot of things that made him stop being what he was. How do you think he'll be remembered? Well, this is an interesting one because depending on your age, you may remember him drunk in Russia in the World Cup, or you may remember your reaction as seeing what he was doing at Napoli and, you know, that kind of color television that wasn't fully colored. And you may remember the World Cups as well, or if you speak Spanish and have seen him misbehave with journalists or, or with women, you have another picture of him. And if you then hear him sitting down explaining stories, you fall in love with him again because he's that charisma. But before I started the book, I asked, I'm the chairman of a football club in the ninth division, but we have obviously coaches 
You've got to start somewhere. Yeah, well, <laughs> as Migos for United, I have to say too. So I asked them all to give me a word, in one word, what Maradona was to them. And what was funny is because I thought, this is England. Many may remember the hand of God. I think there were 30 that answered, well, all of them. And only one said cheat. The rest talked about genius, special, unique, magical. So I think that will succeed. That idea, despite the insistence of Peter Shilton to take it somewhere else, that idea of that him being a unique human being, Having done the book now, I realize, how didn't I think of doing Maradona before? Because, oh my God. I mean, the book finishes mostly in 2001 in the homage that he gets given at the Bombonera. Because if you now have to also explain the whole managerial period, that's a book in itself. Maybe I'll do it one day. But certainly, oh wow, it's, it's like so huge. And everybody will have a memory of it. But I think the biggest conclusion from all of us is that we had a genius walking in earth in our era. I want to talk about managers a little more, actually, a little more broadly since you mention it. And perhaps beyond our subjects of today, we can take it where we like. Do you think the best managers always look to create healthy conflict in their teams? No, I thought that. And there's that story I tell many times of Jose Mourinho, who's the archetypical case, who used to put some of his key players and wives in his house for dinner, beers served around, everybody relaxes. And two things were happening those nights. A lot of information he got from the wives, through his wife maybe, <laughs> or through yeah. himself by asking. <laughs> the second thing that happened in that particular day was that he goes to John Terry and says, do you know that Frank Lampard thinks that you're not a great centre-back? that your passing ability is not great. And then he goes to Lampard and says, John Terry thinks that you're less of a leader than you think you are. And then, boom, something happens there that something gets created, something new gets clear of the air or whatever you want to call it, and all of a sudden, something new comes up. But I think we are in a different era now in which the role of the manager is completely different. It's about creating harmony, actually, most of the time. Pochettino, PSG, that's a clear example. Apart from the Galactico era, nobody's had a Messi, Neymar, and Mbappé together. Plus the captain of Spain, Ramos, the captain of Holland, Unialdum. And, and these are leaders wherever they came from. And now they have to just be one of many. So harmony is so important. They become more teachers. They have to, I think, become more teachers. Guys, this is what I want. This is the picture of, that I've got in my head of how we should play. This is what you have to give me. And then just taking there, you know, holding their hands and taking there. I think the air of shouting and conflict and all that, I think, is gone. So when we compare, say, Pep and Jose Mourinho, while Jose is, is full of bravura, rage, grandiosity, conviction, Pep is obviously more fragile, introspective, experimental. Do you think that in the end will give him, Pep, greater managerial longevity if he wants it? I mean, perhaps we're seeing the decline of Mourinho anyway and his style of management. Do you know what? I think they are as strong as each other and as fragile as each other. Is how they hide that fragility. And they've got a lot in common, and that's something I explore in the third book, much more than we would think, because they obviously both create a sensation of the world against us in different ways. They behave differently in front of the media. They put the message across in a different way. But at the end, it's about creating that picture of what they want on the pitch. And yes, for me, it's more modern the way that Pep Guardiola has done it, because it's very, very flexible and moldable, so it can go with the times as well. So if the time is about passing the ball around with a high speed, well, he just adapt to that as well. If he's got a team that counter-attacks, he can do the same idea, but more able to attack those spaces. I think it's more rigid in the case of Jose Mourinho, and that's what stops giving him the longevity. Not so much his personality. He obviously does a lot of things for his own benefit, because having been sacked for many clubs makes you a millionaire multiple times, and also takes you away at a time when people are doubting if you are very, very good. Many people think you are, and others are not sure. If you continue in a place where you doubt it, 90% of the people think that you're not very, very good, so 
it's better to leave at the right time. He's got a talent for that. And for Pep Guardiola now, it's about stability, finding a club that I think is going to stay beyond his contract now. I think he will stay for at least another season because, yes, he goes next into a national side that will always be a World Cup and there will be a national side that wants him. But right now, he's found this stability in his life that allows him to keep growing. That, again, is the club now helping him to reach that longevity. Well, talking of longevity, of course, Alex Ferguson, who wrote the foreword to the book and who you reference variously in it, he spent a quarter of a century at Manchester United. He, Alex Ferguson, suggested that Pep should have stayed at Barcelona to build a dynasty because he left after four years. Both of them are great managers in their own ways. I mean, what differentiates Ferguson and Pep as characters and in their behaviours from what you've observed? Ferguson's idea of um, of his journey into coaching or in life, really, to create a legacy. But for Pep Guardiola, he started thinking, how about if I take Johan Cruyff to the house of Beckenbauer, given the opportunity by Munich to run the club? He thought, would they be able to understand what I'm trying to do? Would they enjoy it? Would it bring success? Can I use the players that they've got there? And he changed. He adapted to a lot of what was happening in the Bundesliga at the time, quick transitions, but still tried to control games. And it kind of worked. Many would say, oh, but he didn't win the Champions League with the kind of a squad that he had. But that's not the point, I think, of his journey, using that word again. It's more about, this is how I think things should be done. This is the style I would like to implement. Did he manage to do that? Well, did he? <laughs> I mean, he created a whole new generation of coaches that want to be him or have learned from him and admire him. This is in Germany. And reproduce some of the stuff that he does. That is for me, bigger success. And then when he went to England, it's, it's become a little bit the same again. So for him, it wasn't so much about being in Barcelona for 25 years. He didn't see himself that. He actually had in his head, right, Germany, at some point England, at some point a national side, and then retirement. We'll see if he continues with that, but that was what he had in his head. And that already is a huge difference with how Alex Ferguson thinks. I mean, you alluded to the fact that it would be another whole book to discuss Maradona's managerial career. But in simple terms, if you can summarize, why is Pep a great manager and why was Maradona a terrible manager? Maradona couldn't explain in minutia how to play the way that he wanted. That's the success of a manager when actually has got an idea what he wants to do, but knows the way to get there. And he's patient enough to see it grow and fail and adapt and all those things that Maradona was never willing to do. A lot of the managerial career of Maradona, he struggled with his own demons. So he didn't have the patience or the consistency of the delivery and the work, really. With Pep Guardiola, is, as we said earlier, is one of those personalities in which it's about this getting to a place, but never being fully satisfied and continue trying something else. And even though changing is hugely difficult, change is what he's done wherever he's been. And it's because he's got a very solid idea of where he wants to go. And he knows the principles and the setups and the training sessions and the lot of things that he needs to actually get there. And, you know, for as long as he's got the energy, knowing, having this clarity of vision, he will always get there. I mean, Cruyff was probably the exception to the rule in terms of a playing genius, if we can put him in that category, whom also made a very great manager. But there is a sort of a, a truism or a cliche, at least, that, you know, geniuses rarely make great managers. And perhaps Maradona fits into that category. Yes, because how many times can you get to the sky? <laughs> I think as humans, possibly once. And then... It never feels the same. If you try to do it again, I imagine, you know, you, something that comes so natural to you to transform yourself in another genius at another job, because managing is completely different. You have to think of 25 bastards, at, at some say, instead of just your own. 
or yourself, well then, you know, unless you have the hunger to get there again and be humble enough to say, right, I was a very good player, but as a manager, I know nothing. And I think Maradona will never face that. Then you won't get to be a successful manager. Think about Johan Cruyff. He had the same principle as a player and as a coach, which was, I'm not good enough. So how can I actually do it in a way that I can hide my weaknesses and exploit my strengths? That's one thing he did, both as a player, as a manager. But also, one other thing that he did was very clearly to think differently. So while everyone was thinking we were all going that way, he goes like, well, how about that way? Because he was allowed to do that in big clubs with big players, good to good players. I mean, if he had done that at, with the bottom of the table in La Liga, he would have struggled. But with Barcelona, he could do it and was allowed to do it. Then eventually, success came. He explore things in a new place. And yes, even though in the rondos, he still was the best player. And he could humiliate you if you weren't good enough with the first touch or didn't do the things that he was supposed to do. And that still came natural to Johan Cruyff. He had the ability to look beyond the individual and create a collective idea. And again, explore many ways to get there. He got many wrong, but as he was the first one, doing a lot of the things that he was doing and was allowed to continue. This is important. Barcelona allowed him to do it for a long time. Then he got to be at the top of the game in the football world. Was he a genius as a manager? He was a genius because he was telling to all of us, think differently and you can get to another way of getting to the top. And that's been followed by others like Pepe himself. Last question, Guillaume, before we get to the quick fire. Who's your next subject? I've got a couple of books or at least an agreement for two more books, but it has to be something that drowns you and basically you want to dedicate two years of your life to, and I haven't found it yet. got a couple of ideas, but it has to be one of those that all of us, the publishing company and myself, go like, yeah, let's do that. At the moment, we haven't got there yet. Another pandemic might suit your schedule quite well, I imagine. That too. Uh, Not that we wish it on anyone. Let's do some quick fire before we close, shall we? Go on. Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Allow me to run a football club. Good answer. What's your most powerful memory? The moment where, and this has happened in every book, the subject says, yeah, okay, let's do it. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. That I don't think I'm particularly interesting, that's one. Too self-deprecating, come on. Well, that I wrote songs and I got a couple of bands to actually put music to it and I'm very proud of that experiment. Can we find you on Spotify or Apple? Yeah, on the Spotify, I think so. And there were pages I left some of them as well. But, but yeah, I'm very proud of that experience. Cool. Apart from your own, or you could include your own books if you so wish, which book do you gift most regularly? The Italian Job of Ocab Marcotti, because he explored things for the first time. It's obsolete now, completely obsolete, so I don't, I don't give it out anymore. And literature will be... Silk of Barroco. Okay. Actually, Gab is one of my favorite football broadcasters. I used to love listening to him actually when he hosted the Times, the game podcast. We started uh, which, he no, podcast. which he no longer does. Yeah. You, you started that together. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. actually I stopped listening actually when he came off. I thought he was brilliant. What's your desert island music? Uh, depends on the time, the day of the part of the year, but uh, I would say he always has to have Tom Waits and a Catalan singer, the voice of the Mediterranean, Maria del Mar Bonet. Fantastic. I shall check that out. I enjoyed, by the way, your Desert Island equivalent with Pep, which was a great piece of audio with some fantastic Catalan examples there as well, which I really enjoyed. Something very new for me. And lastly, winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. To be honest, the football club is my biggest hobby because partly or in a great way, because it's not about football. Running a football club is about having an idea where you want to go and getting people coming with you and all that that I keep saying when we talk about this. But I get so much 
from running a football club and being in my friends' people's lives, in the volunteers' lives, in the coaches' lives, participating in decisions. And the result is the least important, not the least important thing, but certainly not the thing that attracts me the most about it. That's my biggest hobby. My second biggest hobby would be reading comics. And oh. Hopefully that's what little dream of mine to write a comic at some point. Fantastic. And with that, Guillaume, let me thank you so much for spending time with me today. I always love talking about footballs. And so it's been a real treat for me to share this platform with you today and get under the skin of two of the game's most fascinating characters to understand what makes them tick, what differentiates them from the pack and what makes them, just like us, mere mortals, very human. So thank you, Guillaume, so much. It's been a huge pleasure, Daniel, and I really enjoyed your podcast, so keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Guillaume. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Guillaume. It's a little off the beaten behavioural path, but my goal with a load of BS is to stretch the boundaries, experiment and give voice to those beyond the academic mainstream. So we can understand behaviour and eccentricity not only in the laboratories and cafes at Stanford, Harvard and MIT, but out in the wild too. That's a subject I'll return to when I interview Dilip Soman and Nina Mazar about their engrossing new book, Behavioural Science in the Wild. That is to come. Next time, however, I'll be talking about expectations with scientist and journalist David Robson. Our capacity for our beliefs to influence outcomes in all walks of life is far stronger than you might imagine. Anticipation and ceremony around a bottle of wine is something, of course, I've discussed here with Joe Fattorini. And the expectation created around a bottle certainly affects one's enjoyment of it. David takes us way beyond booze into healthcare, medicine, sport, work and diet. Tune in, I would not expect anything less of you.